0: Well, it's my privilege uh, this morning to introduce our speaker who's been here a couple of times over the years and uh, has always left a, a spiritual deposit that we've wrestled with in a good way. And before I, um, I bring up Graham Sellers, I want to give you a little history of how he got here today. Uh, in 2007, right after Shannon and I got married, uh, this Baptist kid got called to a Lutheran church and it was very different for me and i in full disclosure was trying to discern and figure out how to connect because it was so unfamiliar not bad just unfamiliar and the tr- the church i was at was a part of a network of churches called the alliance of renewal churches and i was invited to go to one of these gatherings that they had and the way they operated was so familiar free in the spirit. There's so many different things that I, okay, I understand that. I understand that. And it was a three-day three uh, event, and Shanna and I were there, and I am hearing these speakers, and I'm meeting all these people, and I'm getting encouraged about being in a foreign atmosphere. And then at the last evening, they close out the, the event with Graham Sellers. And I noticed that he was quiet most of the event. I, I noticed him. I was watching certain people. And he gets up and he preaches, and he's preaching with authority and veracity, and I'm, I'm taking it in. I'm like, oh, I know this style. I know this. And someone said, why is he so angry? And I went, he's not angry, he's preaching. Be quiet. <laughs> it was familiar to me, but it had weight to it. And there was wisdom behind it. And then through the years, um, he's on the Alliance Renewal Church's leadership team, and I was invited to be on that team, and so... I grew to be great friends um, with Graham, and he's a great influence in my life and someone I appreciate and um, who's walked with me. And he's intentional and considerate. And one of the things that you'll notice, though, is that he surrenders to the Lord, no matter how hard that may be. So would you give me a round of applause, not me, give a round of applause (laughs) to Graham Sellers as I bring him up? Force a habit. Sorry, folks. Will you give me a round of applause, please? All right, well, we want to ask our questions this morning. Lord, what do you want to say to us, and how would you have us respond? So if you would just raise a hand and out to Graham as we pray a covering over him this morning. Well, Lord, we thank you um, for what you've done and what you're doing and what you're going to do. And we pray your blessing. We pray that you would fill this place, continue to fill this place with your presence. Um, that you would fill Graham up with energy and uh, with your spirit and that we would stay connected to joy as we um, allow ourselves, as hard as it can be sometimes, to receive the love you have for us and the things you have for us this morning. So we pray your blessing over this time, it's yours, and we want to honor you this morning. So we thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.
1: Amen. Amen. Thanks, friend. I like the question on the banner. Uh, in front of where I was sitting Jesus what do you want to say to me and um, one of the postures I try to practice when I'm listening to a message when I'm a receiver is um, always to have a pen and a paper handy because my my assumption just going into it is God's going to say something to me and I don't have any uh, desire this morning to communicate information I want to communicate revelation from the Father's heart that is a word of life for you. And so I would like to set the level of expectation higher than it typically is for many of us church people who hear sermon after sermon and think, oh, well, I I know what's coming next. Well, I don't even know what's coming next, uh, except that I believe this. I think the Father has a word of life for every person here. And it's not a general generic word, it's personal, and it's designed for each of us. So, with that question in mind, Jesus, what do you want to say to me? I want to overlay that question with another question that is one that is essential to have a sense of what the answer is. How's the battle for your mind going? How's the battle for your mind going? It matters because as that battle goes, so we go. Because how we think becomes how we live. Have you ever wondered why it is that we so frequently do not live and walk in everything that God has invited us to? Well, one of the reasons we don't is because we don't believe we can we think, oh, well, that, that's beyond us. That's out of our reach. That, that's the kind of thing that is reserved for the super spiritual elite, but not for a Yahoo like me. And, and this kind of limiting belief, it has, I think, a triple origin. I think there are three things in play all the time with any limiting belief we have. One is this, human limitation. And this is important to be able to recognize. We all have limitations. But when we become so familiar with our own limitations, uh, they actually tamp down any expectation we have to go beyond them. So you have human limitations and add to that prior experience. By which I mean, the more setbacks that we have had in our life with God, the less likely we are to believe that we will prevail now. And the more that gets into us, the more cynicism begins to poison our thought life. And add to those two dynamics this one. We all have an enemy of our soul who does not want us to have the mind of Christ. Who does not want us to think thoughts that are in agreement and in alignment with what he is thinking. So what do you do with limiting beliefs? In my estimation, limiting beliefs must meet the limitless love of God. It's the only way they go and get turned around. Limiting belief must meet the limitless love of God. This is what happens, for example, to the prophet Jeremiah, who, uh, when he hears about God's idea for his life, Objects strongly. He doesn't like God's idea for his life. And it's how he goes, it's it's the limitless love of God invading his life, is how he goes from saying no to joining the Father where he's working. Because Jeremiah has a very reasonable response when God says, I'm going to make you to be a prophet to the nations. His response is no. And his reason is solid. His reason is, me, look at me. Are you out of your mind, God? Have have you not thought this through? Look at me. And God's response is very interesting. God's reason for Jeremiah to say yes is the same one. Me, Jeremiah, look at me. Are you kidding? Have you thought this through? Look at me. I know what I'm doing. Jeremiah's limiting belief. I can't do it. I'm too young is met by the limitless love of God. And when the limitless love of God meets that limiting belief of, oh, well, it can't be me, I'm too young, then Jeremiah is established in his identity as a son. Because the Lord says to him, Jeremiah, before I formed you in your mother's womb, I knew you. I called you before you were born this is how limiting beliefs are displaced. It's by the limitless love of God. Now, we see that as well, for example, in the theology and in the life of someone with whom you are well familiar at uh, Bridgewood, the Apostle Paul, who says in the book of Romans, and I'm given to understand that you are familiar uh, with the book of Romans, uh, having been in it uh, for the last decade. And To to my knowledge, you're still not through it. And um, may God have mercy on your souls. So think about this. But think about the dynamic that we opened uh, considering that limiting belief has to be met. It must be met. The only thing that can get rid of it is the limitless love of God. And then look at what Paul says in Romans 7, his limiting beliefs, right? He says this. Now, I know that nothing good lives in me, that is, in my sinful nature. I want to do what's right, but I can't. I want to do what's good, but I don't. I don't want to do what is wrong, but I do it anyway. I have discovered this principle of life, that when I want to do what is right, I inevitably do what is wrong. I love God's law with all my heart, but there is another power within me that is at war with my mind. This power makes me a slave to the sin that is still within me. Oh, what a miserable person I am. That's limiting belief. Now, you may also say, hold it, hold it, hold it. He's just being realistic. He's just being honest and transparent, and that is also true. But if that is the fullness of what he believes, it's a limiting belief, and he'll never get beyond it. Because if our starting point is, I can never do anything good if our starting point is, even when I try to do good, bad things happen, then that becomes self-fulfilling because what we believe becomes what we live. And how does Paul escape that? Well, he escapes it when the limitless love of God flows into his life. He says this, oh, what a miserable person I am. Who will free me from this life that is dominated by sin and death? Thank God. The answer is in Jesus Christ, our Lord. Now, this goes directly to the heart of our most persistent and disabling belief that who we are is not enough, that we are fundamentally flawed beyond repair, or alternatively, until we are repaired sufficiently, and the problem with that is that no one knows what sufficiently is, and no one can tell us when that has happened, right? That because we we're fundamentally flawed and because we, we can't be sufficiently repaired, then we are poor candidates to receive and live in the affection and the love of God and equally poor candidates to do any work that's meaningful for the kingdom of God. I mean, this is the way of it for all of us. There is who we are and then there's who we wish we were. So, to assist us in navigating this conversation this morning, I want to call into service Isaiah in perhaps the most memorable of his personal recollections of God's activity in his life. I'm going to read this morning from Isaiah chapter 6, the first eight verses. Now, if you like, you can turn there in your Bibles, but I recommend instead of opening your Bibles, you close your eyes, and you just hear the text, and allow the the beauty of it and the power of it and the drama of it to play on the movie screen of your mind. I'm reading this morning from the New Living Translation, Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 through 8. It was in the year King Uzziah died that I saw the Lord. He was sitting on a lofty throne And the train of his robe filled the temple. Attending him were mighty seraphim, each having six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, and with two they covered their feet, and with two they flew. They were calling out to each other, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of heaven's armies. The whole earth is filled with his glory. Their voices shook the temple to its foundations, and the entire building was filled with smoke. Then I said, It's all over. I am doomed, for I am a sinful man. I have filthy lips, and I live among a people with filthy lips. Yet I have seen the King, the Lord of heaven's armies. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a burning coal he had taken from the altar with a pair of tongs. He touched my lips with it and said, See, this coal has touched your lips. Now your guilt is removed, and your sins are forgiven. Then I heard the Lord asking, Whom should I send as a messenger to this people? Who will go for us? I said, Here I am. Send me. Now we see in Isaiah's experience the truth of this excellent insight from Father Jacques Philippe in his book, Interior Freedom. He writes, the person God loves with the tenderness of a father, the person he wants to touch and transform with his love, is not the person we'd have liked to be or ought to be. It's the person we are. God doesn't love ideal persons or virtual beings. He loves actual, real people. See, funny thing about God, he's not interested in the person we wish we were. He's interested in us right now in real time the way we are. I mean, consider Isaiah's experience. The Lord comes to Isaiah before Isaiah has any knowledge, recognition, or admission of his own sin. The Lord comes to Isaiah before Isaiah makes any changes at all in his life. Before Isaiah can make a response of any kind. You see, the limitless love of God precedes any response that Isaiah might be inclined to make. God makes the first move. God makes the first move with Isaiah and with you and with me. And if we ever get this reality anchored in our hearts, it's going to be a game changer It's very difficult to get this into our thick cranium and, and allow it to go all the way down to our hearts, but this is the reality. God is not interested in the idealized version of us that we think we should aspire to. He's interested in us, the way we actually are. Sinners. On August 1st, 1521, Martin Luther wrote this. Sin boldly, But believe even more boldly in Christ and rejoice. Sin boldly. Pekka fortiter. It is a provocative, remarkable word. Now, if you have any Lutheran background, whether theologically or because you were raised in that context, this is easily the most famous thing he ever wrote. Aside from putting the theses on the door of Wittenberg... This is, this is the most famous thing, sin boldly, right? Now, I'm thinking about this advice, right? And I'm thinking about my daughter. My daughter, Naomi, is 17 years old, and she is a joy, and she's a gem. She's one of uh, four children. She has sisters 19 and 15, and a brother, Sam, who's 10. Naomi is 17. And last year, Naomi got her first boyfriend. Now, this was a crisis for her father, uh, not in heaven, but on earth, and uh, a great drama for our family. And it turns out that Naomi's first boyfriend, his name is Chase, is if you got to fill out a form and you got to specify everything you wanted in a boyfriend for your daughter, if she had to have one, uh, then what you would come up with is Chase. He's the number one ranked student in his high school. He's a starting guard on the basketball team. And since they started dating, he's become a serious follower of Jesus. He is polite. He is kind. He is the kind of boy you would want to have for your own son. And you know what? I have never once, in all the time they've been dating, as they left the house, called out to them, sin boldly, sin boldly, but believe even more boldly in Christ and rejoice. Never once have I said that. Who gives this kind of advice? And what does it mean, right? What does Martin Luther mean? Well, maybe, maybe to sin boldly is to be free to accept who we actually are with all of our limitations and deficiencies, without feeling guilty for existing because we're alive, without apologizing for living because who we are turned out to be so much less than who we thought we would be, than who we wanted to be, than who someone else told us we should be. Now, to sin boldly does not mean that we're free to sin with no consequences. That would not be freedom, but stupidity married to irresponsibility. But maybe, maybe to sin boldly means that we have freedom from the crippling fear that the next mistake we make or mistakes in our past, or a mistake that's going to come farther down the road, that that's going to be the thing that finally makes God throw up his arms and say, that's it. That's it. I've had about as much of this and of you as I can take. We're done here. We're done here. Maybe, maybe to sin boldly means that even when we are at our very worst, when we are in the midst of, of acting out of the worst version of ourself that there is, even then we can still hear the Father say, I love you with a limitless, eternal love. And before you were born, I made a commitment to you. And no one, not even you, can make me change my mind about you to live in the limitless love of God is to be free not only to be sinners but to be sons and daughters and saints you see it's love it's love not guilt not fear and not shame it's love that opens the door to transformation Father uh, Jacques Philippe again in the book in Terry Freedom he writes God can make us sinners that we are, into saints. His grace can accomplish even that miracle, and we can have unlimited faith in the power of his love. And there are going to be people who read that, who hear that, and who immediately, the internal dialogue will be, everyone but me. That's true of the people around me, but it's not, I'm the exception to the statement I'm the exception to the statement that limiting belief is so powerful. But the Lord wants us to know that limiting belief is not from him. Now, as I'm preparing this message, as I'm writing, and I come to this exact point in the message, and I realize I'm listening to a song that I uh, heard when I was in my high school days. It's a song written by Pete Townsend, who was one of the founding members of the super group from Great Britain, The Who. And The Who, in the 60s and the 70s, they were a band that was so popular, they filled stadiums all over the world, their average crowd was between 50 to 110,000 people every time they played a concert. And Pete Townsend also had a solo career. And so he wrote a song called Let My Love Open the Door, but I wasn't listening at this time to Pete Townsend's version of it. I was listening to a cover version that was released last year by a man named Jimmy LeFave, who I love. And Jimmy LeFave, last year before this album was released, died of bone cancer, died young, died too early. And I was listening to the song, and I was thinking about the great loss, and then the lyrics caught my attention. And I want to show you just a a brief excerpt from this song, Let My Love Open the Door. I hold the only key to your heart. I can stop you falling apart. Release yourself from misery. There's only one thing going to set you free. That's my love. Let my love open the door to your heart. Now, a little rock and roll trivia that may be of interest only to me. Pete... uh, Pete Townsend, when he wrote this song, was not a follower of Jesus. I don't know if he ever became one. He, like a lot of the British superstars from the 60s and the 70s, he was the follower of a guru, right, in the Middle East. This is very common. Uh, But interestingly, when Pete Townsend uh, compiled his personal greatest hits from his solo career on an album entitled Gold, he wrote liner notes, which is where you make comments on the various songs and how they were written and what you think stands out about them. And about this song, Townsend wrote in his liner notes for gold, oh, this is the song on which Jesus sings you can hear him singing these words, can you not? Can you not? I hold the only key to your heart. I can stop you falling apart. Release yourself from misery. There's only one thing going to set you free. That's my love. Let my love open the door. I'm listening to these, these, these lyrics as they're sung by the late Jimmy Lafave, And I find myself wishing and hoping Oh, I hope Jimmy, I hope Jimmy let God's love open the door to his heart before he died. And I'm thinking this, and I'm almost tearing up while I'm thinking it. And the Holy Spirit drops a question into my heart. And the question is this, Graham, do you remember when my love opened the door to your heart? And I did. I was a 24 years old seminary student. And it happened in a corner gas station. I was having dinner at a friend's mom's house. She was a spectacular cook. Her fried chicken is the best I've ever had. I'd crawl over broken glass to get to it. And they were having a big family meal. My friend Mark, his sister, was coming in from Texas with all of her kids and her husband. And after the meal, uh, Sam... Her husband says to me, "Now, I have never met Sam prior to this meal, and I hardly talked to him at all at the dinner table." He says to me, "Graham, why don't you come with me down to the gas station? I need to fill up the Suburban before we drive home to Texas tomorrow." I said, "Okay." So we we get into the car, we go down to the corner gas station. Sam gets out and he goes to pay for the gas, and I'm standing there pumping the gas into the Suburban. And Sam comes back out, and when Sam comes out, I'm leaning against the Suburban, pumping the gas. And Sam walks right up to me, and he's only about this far from me now, and he just looks at me. And this is not a normal look that he's giving me. It's not a typical look. It is serious, and it is penetrating, and it is exceedingly, exceedingly gentle. And he says to me, Graham, I know there are things in your life right now that you are deeply ashamed of. And then he told me exactly what they were. He described them in such detail, it was like he was reading from a list on a piece of paper. But he had no list and he had no paper. He was simply looking me in the eye. And he continued... And you think, you think you are the only one who struggles like this. And further, you believe that these things disqualify you from ever serving God in a meaningful way. Because if you do, you will know it. You will be an absolute fraud. Now, maybe nobody else will know that, but you'll know it. And then Sam takes a step toward me, and he says, and he puts his hand on my chest, and his hand is like fire. He says, Graham, it's over. It's done. It's gone. And in between services, I was thinking about this experience. And uh, how the Lord reminded me of what he said after that. He he looked at me and his voice was so tender and so soft and he said, the Father loves you so much. He's so proud of you. He's so proud of you. And I broke down sobbing. I couldn't take it. It was too much. I was undone. I was undone. See, I'd been in environments where people's sin had been called out before. I felt like I was in hell. I've been in environments where the scriptures were pulled out and used to bludgeon people until they were in submission or conformance to some standard that the pastor or the church had. But I had never before had anyone speak to my sin. And I felt alive rather than like I was dying. It was the single most powerful spiritual experience I have ever had with anyone at any time anywhere. And it happened at a corner gas station with a man who did not know me from Adam. I didn't make the first move. I didn't make any move. God did. He sent a farmer from Texas to press the coal against my lips and announce, now your guilt is removed. Now your sin is forgiven. And that that encounter, more than any single thing in my life up to that point, opened the way for me to walk in the life God was inviting me into and to respond to the call on my life to be a pastor. See, my limiting belief, you know, it was based on accurate self-knowledge and prior experience of multiple disappointments with God and an enemy who did not want me to know what God really thought of me. My limiting belief was met by the limitless love of God and it was overcome. Overcome. It was love that opened the door to my heart. You couldn't have talked me into it. You couldn't have preached me into it. You couldn't have argued me into it. You couldn't have opened the Bible and showed me scriptures that demonstrated that very truth. It was love and only love that did it. Only love can put to rest the limiting beliefs that have become a core part of our identity. And ever since that experience, it's been my conviction and my ongoing reflection when I read this passage from Isaiah 6, that only when we are free to recognize and accept who we actually are, are we ready to be sent anywhere. But we invert that order because over the years, the church has inverted it for us and told us that we'd better get straightened out first. We, we had better get our, our, our lives in order first. And then when you've got your life in order, when you've been sufficiently repaired, then, then you'll be ready to do the thing God's called you to. I had a nationally recognized minister say to me in a private conversation, a buddy of mine was his right-hand man, so I got to meet him and spend time with him. He told me, he said, Graham, you know... Uh, Until your character matches your assignment, you'll never walk in the thing God wants you to walk in. And I thought, well, I am out of luck because my character is never going to match the assignment. And it never will. And I think as brilliant as this man is, I think he's wrong. And I think he's wrong on the basis of Scripture. If you look at Isaiah, for example, God comes to him before. He comes to him before he's been repaired. He comes to him before he has any recognition of his sin. And and when Isaiah sees his sin, that's when the limitless love of God can flood into his life and open the door to his heart. And then Isaiah can step into the best future that God has for him. It doesn't work any differently for us. God is not interested in the person we wish we were. He's interested in us, the way we are right now. Used to be when I would preach, whether in my own environment or as a guest elsewhere, uh, I have pretty high standards for myself. I, um, had desires for excellence, and I wanted to equip myself well, and it mattered a great deal to me whether or not I did. My own perception was more important than the perception of others, but the feedback of others meant a great deal. And whether I felt good about what I have just done often depended on what kind of either internal dialogue was going on or what other people were saying to me in response. And um, that's been true. I've pastored the church I'm at for 25 years. And that's been true for me for, uh, oh, I don't know, 20 years or so. But about four or five years ago, when I was in just a quiet time with the Lord alone, uh, and I asked him what he wanted me to know, right? It's very much like what you have on your banner. You know, what do you want to say to me? He said, I want to talk to you about your preaching, And I said, oh, to myself, crap. Oh, this one thing that I hang my hat on, man, I'm going down and it's not going to be pretty, right? Um, And he said, I want you to think about Sam. Sam, my little boy who's 10. Think about how much fun you have watching him play football. Sam loves football, and Sam is good at football, and he's its just so much fun. I get so much joy watching my little boy. It's disproportionate to what's actually happening. And when I'm there, and I'm surrounded by other people, I can't believe they don't take the same joy in my son that I do. What's wrong with them? I don't understand. And the father said to me, when you're preaching, that's what it's like for me. I just love watching my little boy. And you never have to preach a good sermon again ever. And I'm going to love watching my little boy. And ever since he said that to me, I've been free. I've been free. So Sharon after the first service, she leans over to me, she said, "Did you have fun?" And uh you know, that, that question can have some pressure attached to it. If you didn't have fun, well, what's wrong with you, right? That's not how she asked it, right? But I mean, look, that's real, right? What are you not allowed? It's like when, when your pastor said, Oh, can I get a hoot and a holler for this event? What are you going to do? Sit there and say nothing and crush his spirit? Oh, try it next week. I just, let's see how it goes. But so she said, Did you have fun? And I said, Yes, I always have fun. And I do because I don't care what you think. Now, I care. I care deeply that there be revelation from the Father that penetrates the heart that brings life. Don't misunderstand me. But I won't spend 15 seconds after I'm done wondering how I did. Because the image that's just, in, just burned into my mind now is the Father watching me, taking as much pleasure in me, having fun preaching as I do when Sam is playing football. Now, it seems to me that only love could have overcome the limiting belief that I'm as good as I perform, right? And only love could overcome the limiting belief that I really didn't perform as well as I should have. I think we have two options when it comes to framing reality. And these options are available in every circumstance. We can either frame things uh, through the grid of I have to, Or we can frame it through the grid of I get to. And when we choose I get to over I have to, we choose how we are going to do life. So just a small little illustration of it. Saturday morning before I flew out, my wife said to me, knowing that we had leadership team meetings for the Alliance of Renewal Church, she said, hey, do you have any responsibilities in Minnesota this week when you go? And I said, yeah, yeah, I have to preach at Bridgewood. And I was thinking about this statement on the plane. And uh, I was thinking, that's, that's not even what I, what I feel. I, it's not even what I think. I mean, you know what? It's factually true. I do have to preach here this morning because I promised your pastor I would. And he's a buddy, so I'm obligated. But here's the problem. The framing device of I have to is obligatory. And it carries with it often a sense of dread. I have to do this. And the reality is, and I told this to Brendan before the, the morning started. He said, well, how are you feeling about the week? Because he's on the leadership team with me. And I said, this is going to be the best part of my week. It's the only thing I've looked forward to. And that's, all, all along I've been thinking I get to. But when I articulated it to my wife, I said I have to. And it changed the reality. It shaped the reality I was living in, right? So when we are free or say it differently, when we're not free to accept who we actually are, but we are constantly lamenting this defect, or that limitation, or this weakness, thinking, oh, that, that, that shows spiritual maturity that we, that we see our limitations. And when we are always wishing that we were someone or something else, then we have to live life broken and flawed, with contentment always beyond our grasp. Conversely, When we can accept who we actually are, not only in our sinfulness, but with a recognition that God's limitless love is greater than anything that we have imposed as a limit upon ourselves, well, that's when we can be fully confident of God's grace and stand in expectation of it. And really, at at some level, this all comes back to the question, how's the battle for your mind going? Because as that battle goes, so we go. Because how we think shapes how we live. And when we're trapped in limiting self beliefs about ourselves, right, it shapes the reality we're in. And here's one way to tell that limiting beliefs have corrupted some aspect of your inner sense of self someone will give you a compliment. And you can't just accept it. And when they give you a compliment, you diminish it. You deflect it. You correct it, right? You... You, you push it down a little bit. You say, oh, well, you know, uh, it wasn't really quite what I'd hoped to do. And I mean, it was a little bit like, but then, you know, I appreciate that you, you enjoyed it, but boy, I was certainly hoping for more. Or maybe you do the weird religious thing that irritates me almost more than any response, which is, let's say you've been doing something related to, uh, specifically to kingdom ministry, and someone says, hey, you did a really great job at that. And instead of being able to accept that compliment— you say, believing it's spiritual, oh, well, it wasn't me. It was Jesus. Uh, No. No, it was you. Jesus in you working through you, but it was you. And so let me just help. Let me give you a simple tool to begin combating limiting beliefs. When someone gives you a compliment, say thank you, and then shut up. No, I kid you not. This is going to be one of the most freeing things you ever do if you try it. And it's, by the way, it's hard. It's hard. If you're not used to doing it, it's hard. But, and people, you, know, you guys, this, this is a really nasty congregation. Because after the first service, I'm sitting outside. There were people who were in the, the service, of course. And they came out and they gave me compliments. They did. I'm certain they did it to find out if I would just say, thank you. I'm no idiot. All I said was thank you. But I'm telling you. If you, if you want a concrete exercise just that will do something to your life, say thank you and then say nothing else, right? Now, I admit that when people are giving compliments, sometimes we are inclined to say, boy, they don't really know me. I mean, if they knew who I really was, if they knew what I was really like, they wouldn't be saying that at all. You know what my opinion on that, is, what my take is, what my counsel is? Why disabuse them of the notion they have of you? Honestly, let them believe it. You know why? Because the world and the enemy of your soul wants you to feel worthless. He wants you to feel like trash. He wants you to feel like you're dirt. Everything already piles upon you. And when someone comes... And they give you a compliment that you don't think you deserve. Know this. They are speaking the heart of the Father into your life. And they are not only speaking to what is, they are speaking to what is going to be. Limiting beliefs can kill us. But when the limitless love of God comes along, that's when we can really live. And it was the limitless love of God at a corner gas station that changed the trajectory of my whole life. And it was the limitless, limitless love of God in a private conversation with him when he told me that when I'm preaching, he loves watching his little boy as much as I love watching Sam play football. It changed my entire experience of what I've been trained to do. So this morning I would ask you this. What's the limiting belief? What's the limiting belief that's holding you back and tamping you down? I assure you of this in advance. It's a very well-defended limited belief. It's so well-defended you believe it's true. And then you'll ask yourself this question, well, if this isn't true, who am I, right? Let me tell you this. You are someone whom the Father knew before you were ever born. He had plans for you. And he committed to you in advance. So I want to give you this invitation. We're going to take a brief moment before we begin to receive communion. I want to invite you in the quiet of your own heart and in this moment to ask the Lord. Is there a limited belief that I've allowed to be truth for me that you want to release me from? Just just let him speak to you about it. And then as we receive the Lord's Supper together. And you just come for it whenever you're ready to the tables here on the sides. Maybe bring a friend, look around the room, find someone that that you believe the Father wants you to be in community with for the receiving of the body and the blood of Christ. Then as you receive, as you take communion, hear these words because they are what the Father would say to you. I love you with a limitless, eternal love. I made a commitment to you before you were ever born. And no one, not even you, can make me change my mind about you. Holy Spirit, would you come and work in our hearts now so that as you bring to the forefront of our attention a confining and disabling, limiting belief about ourselves even as we come to the table, that limiting belief will meet your limitless love. So you listen to the Holy Spirit and then come and receive the meal as you're ready.
2: a gentleman named corny growth that goes here do you know corny yeah he's quite a guy he has a sweatshirt that i i want to get one it says in my defense i was left totally unsupervised and when i was standing back here praying brennan came up he says you know uh, we don't necessarily have a close do you have a close and the first thing that went through my mind is well who am i to close is that a limiting belief? Yes, it is. And then I realized uh, I've been left totally unsupervised this weekend because Betsy's in St. Louis, so I've been batching it. It's terrible to leave Mark Spencer alone with Mark Spencer. And I was having so many thought wars and so many struggles, and I was just feeling more and more condemned, and like, what is going on? I'm Just like a nervous wreck. What's my problem? And then early yesterday morning when I was trying to have a quiet time the Lord said when are you going to invite me into your struggle? And I realized what I was trying to do is get myself right make myself look somewhat pretty presentable and then show up. Er, Wrong answer Spencer. There's a lot to Graham's message this morning. I would encourage you in the comfort of your own home, to listen to it again and to take note what the Holy Spirit's saying. But I believe that I'm not alone in this fight, that those creepy, limiting beliefs, they just will come back as these shadowy, mind-clouding, heart-numbing, spirit-killing things that they are. And then we need to hear the limitless love of God say, Hey, Spencer, when are you going to invite me in? The Savior of it all says, He who the Son makes free is free indeed. If there's anything the enemy wants to steal from you and I, it's that freedom. So I I plead with you. When this message is online early this week, listen again. This isn't a one and done. Listen again and let the Spirit of God get right in the middle of those limiting thoughts. Would you? Could you? That's not a rhetorical question. That's a pastor pleading with you, all right? So let's pray. Because at the end of that, the the amazing thing is that All it took was for the Lord to interrupt Spencer's crazy thoughts and to go, can I get in the midst of this struggle? And I said, oh, absolutely, Papa. Bam. It was a literal 180. (laughs) Right around. And you're, I just go, gosh, I am slow. Don't be as slow as Spencer. Be much faster when you listen. Can we pray? Lord, we thank you that you are always invading. You're always that shepherd that goes out looking. You're always knocking. You're always calling. You're always bidding. And man, your love is, I don't know, it's just something else. So I pray Lord, that your spirit would continue the work that you've begun this morning. That we would remember and take a moment to listen again, to let your spirit undo those limiting thoughts to recenter us, to reset us. And we pray for your Holy Spirit momentum to not just lift us out, but propel us on. And we would find ourselves walking in a lasting freedom as the children of God. We know you want to do it. And we say amen to that. Amen. God bless you real good. See you next Sunday.